The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts. Radio. News. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Asia podcast. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join Brian Curtis and myself for the stories making news and moving markets in the APAC region. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcast and always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal and the Bloomberg Business app. Baidu's quarterly adjusted operating income beat expectations by 5.4% due to better cost control. However, AI-related losses deepened and adjusted profit in Baidu was actually down 7.1%. And the stock is trading off 4.3% in the early action this morning. Joining us now for some analysis is Robert Lee, who is senior analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, to take a closer look. So revenue was up something like 6%. That's not particularly good for a company of this ilk, really, uh, in, in, uh, in the area of technology for uh, Hong Kong and China. Uh, but then the expenses, as we mentioned, there were up a lot. Uh, is that likely to continue, Robert? And can we see losses going forward? Um, great questions. Um, I think taking a step back, the reality of what Baidu is today, although it was seen a year ago as China's leading AI play, the reality is it's a search engine business that accounts for the bulk of its revenue and the bulk of its earnings. Um, search is, like in most countries, a fairly mature industry. Baidu is the number one ranked search engine in China. You know, Google's actually, because of geopolitics, etc., is not operational in China. Um, so the issue for the core of Baidu's business uh, is their search business is uh, advertising-driven uh, revenue model, uh, which is obviously tied to the underlying economy. And as we go into a period of slowing economic growth, obviously corporate clients and advertisers are tightening their belts. And that, we saw early evidence of that coming through uh, in the numbers that were reported last night, plus it was referred to on the call. So I think that's one uh, issue that impacted sentiment and accounts for the decline we're seeing in the market today. The sort of other side of the business is, they have um, a fingers in a lot of different pies on the AI side, from autonomous vehicles to their Ernie Bot ChatGPT-like product. Um, they do have some traction there on the revenue front, although revenues remain very small at this moment. They're looking for a few hundred billion of revenue this year. That's in the context of a business that turns over something like 130 billion revenue. So it's quite small beer at the moment. And it's AI businesses in aggregate are loss making, and those losses are likely to increase in the coming year. So you've got the core advertising business, which is going into a period of slowing growth, potentially with some margin pressure, and AI businesses that remain very early stage, and arguably the losses on those into next year are going to widen. Mm. So you know we're not seeing that earning, earnings kicker come through, unlike a lot of the you know okay. magnificent seven. So when it comes to the use of AI in search, whether you're Baidu or here in the States, whether you're talking about Google, is there a lot of evidence to suggest that the implementation of AI is necessarily going to deliver better results where, where kind of conventional search is concerned, or we just don't have enough data to make that statement? Um, again, great question. I, I think the anecdotal evidence is, is absolutely there that it does. It will enhance the um, search capabilities, etc. But the key question is, 
are people going to pay for it? <laughs> because on the consumer side, and particularly in China, we live in a world where people are used to these services for free. I mean, again, you, you go on the web, you Google, you pay nothing as a consumer. So I think it's very difficult for Baidu and its peers overseas as well to start charging for these services. And the other side is, again, are the corporate users going to start paying extra for their advertising on the back of any enhanced search? And again, that remains very unclear at the moment. So the monetization efforts are very unclear and indistinct at the moment, not just for Baidu. I'd say that also applies to a lot of the U.S. peers as well. So just to remind our listeners uh, that we have our reporters in Bloomberg News, and then we have our analysts in Bloomberg Intelligence. So Robert is giving you uh, his neutral analysis of of the company. And I want to go back to the point you made, Robert, which seems like you're saying that the misstep that we see here for Baidu is really down to weakness in the economy and not... Uh, in fact, um, missteps in strategy, management considerations. Uh, is this company, do you think, in good shape uh, with its fundamentals and will get better if and when the economy improves? Um, it's a profitable business. It's generating you know, healthy free cash flow. Its core search business may not be particularly high growth. And as I've said, it, it is tied to the outlook for economic growth. But there's no fundamental concern on that front. However, as I said, it was certainly a year ago, it was seen as China's leading AI play. The sort of level of AI-related revenue it's, it's going to generate in the next year is relatively small, and they're all loss-making. So are we going to get that earnings kicker coming through from AI in the next year or two? It's highly unlikely. Therefore, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with uh, Baidu in any way. But I don't think it, you know, anybody would really describe it as a growth company. Um, and, I th you know, and, and the other thing on the AI side, the China's leading Internet giants like Alibaba, Tencent and Huawei are, you know, quite quickly narrowing the, the technology gap and catching up with Baidu. So there's a competitive element. Uh, potentially threatening them over the next three years as well. We were just talking the other day about this uh, investment that uh, Baba is making in a new AI startup. Um, the name escapes me at the moment. I think it was a billion dollars. They're leading the funding on uh, the round, and I think the startup is valued now at around $2.5 U.S., um, was it Moonshot or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, Moonshot. Uh, moon, yeah, yeah, Moon AI. Yeah. Okay, so generally speaking, when if you had to compare what's happening here uh, at the consumer level where AI is kind of intersecting a lot of these platforms with what's going on in China, one of the things that I think about in China is the restrictions on the internet more broadly. And if you have to train these models on data that is, is really not as inclusive, I would think that the that the end, the output is going to be very limited. Am I right in that? I, I, absolutely, because something like 90% or thereabouts of all the data and information on the World Wide Web is in English. So Chinese language uh, data and information accounts for around 10%. And as you've just you know, uh, referred to, there are censorship restrictions. Um, so I, I think, and I, I read something interesting last night as well, looking at the longer term performance and accuracy of some of these uh, chatbots, and that they all sort of average out a sort of similar level over time. The key differentiator is access to training data. So if China's AI models and chatbots are, are, are being trained off a, a relatively restricted data set, that will impact their accuracy and usefulness in the long run. Having said that, Baidu is... China's number one ranked uh, chatbot on the moment. 
And from, you know, from where we see at the moment, it will likely remain in that position for the foreseeable future. But is it making money or is it likely to make money? We've seen some notable stumbles from Google uh, with Gemini, and it really set back the stock quite a bit. Uh, and then today we hear that even Microsoft has had some, some issues um, with, with its uh, chatbot as well. And I'm wondering whether or not Baidu in China, I'm not sure it would be made public, but have we heard anything about any mistakes or distorted data coming out of its AI search? Um, yeah, I think, again, going back to censorship in the early days, you know, if you, if you want to uh, ask something about politics or the president, um, you know, it gave some potentially inappropriate answers which have been clamped down on by censors, etc. Um, but, you know, just again, anecdotally, obviously myself and my colleagues have, have, have used these systems and experimented with them in a very sort of informal way. I think the accuracy of the answers that ErnieBot produces um, versus a chat GPT, um, there is a noticeable lack of detail on, on the Chinese side. Again, whether that's due to the underlying algorithms or the accessibility of the underlying data set for training is probably more the latter, I would say. So next week, we're looking to the NPC uh, meeting. And one of the questions that we've been asking is about, you know, the growth target, yes, but also the focus of where this activity, this economic activity is going to come from. And I think for the private sector, particularly in China, where technology is concerned, there has been a little bit of trepidation, big question mark over government policy. I think that the people who play in this field have at some times felt as though the rug has been pulled out from underneath them, perhaps midstream. Do you think the the leaders in China understand the importance of this technology economy in providing a lot of the engine for future growth? I, absolutely, I think they do. And I speak as someone who's British and hopefully independent of everything. Um, no, absolutely. Alibaba and China, uh, Alibaba, Tencent and Huawei are the three, and may arguably ByteDance as well, are the three or four large technology giants within the Chinese economy. They absolutely underpin uh, not just the, the growth in the technology sector itself, but they're important drivers of economic growth. And if you look at any pronouncements from the senior leadership in China, I think they do understand that. However, as a one-party state, there are you know, particular issues with the way China likes to manage things, censorship, um, etc. Um, but looking forward, I think we should see a more stable regulatory environment going ah, forward. Yeah, that's a key point. Yeah. Um, which has obviously been an area of significant concern in the last few years. Well, that fuels my next question, which was kind of about politics. Uh, we saw Alibaba stumble to a certain degree uh, because of Jack Ma's relationship with policymakers. And although it didn't come out in public, Tencent, with uh, a little bit of a struggle, Pony Ma had to step back a little bit. How is Baidu's relationship with the party? As far as I'm aware, um, I, I think they have good relations. Um, I, so it's not so much an issue of that. Again, it's fundamentally, uh, do they have the monetization model, the right revenue model to drive significant earnings growth on these AI tools? And, you know, it's it, it very unclear. And then from my point of view, I think it's highly unlikely we'll see that earnings kicker come through, not just this year, but in the next two to three years. 
Um, that's the main issue for them. It's, it's just an issue of the, the, the corporate management um, and the fundamental earnings model. It's not an issue of their relationship with the party or the government, etc. I think the government would love to support them as in as best they can. But if yeah. they don't have the right business model there, they're not going to make money. Yeah, I probably should have instead said the relationship with the party. I probably should have said with, with policy or with the regulators. Uh, and that would be a little bit less political. Enda Curran always uh, says after coming off this program that he really enjoyed his morning workout. Deep <laughs> breath, exhale slowly. Glad that's over with. Robert, uh, nice to have you playing game with us, uh, playing the game. Robert Lee, Senior Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. This is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Joining us to discuss this a little bit further is John Liu, who is Bloomberg Executive Editor in Beijing. So, John, a couple of issues here. One is the root of the problem. Uh, what's causing people to want to short stocks and to make these downside bets? And the other is, you know, some of these measures taken by quant funds that that actually uh, sort of lead to exacerbating the losses. Uh, are they, do you think policymakers are getting at both of those objectives? So on the first question, Brian, I think there is a lot of pessimism about the outlook for the economy. That that has been the case for the last uh, probably, I would say, a uh, year or so. Uh, that, that Last year, you'll remember, there was a lot of optimism coming out of COVID, people expecting uh, an economic boom to happen as uh, people got out of lockdowns, went out and spent, and that just never occurred. And on top of that, we had the property crisis that has made things worse. And so we come into 2024 with a lot of people worried about where the economy is going. And that has led to this desire to hedge their positions when it comes to the stock market, to short uh, the market. Uh, when it comes to this strategy and quant funds, there, the regulator at this moment uh, has been trying to stop the trajectory of, of the downward trajectory of the market by every means at its disposal. We've seen state funds go into the market. We've seen uh, regulators step in to tell uh, institutions what they can and cannot do. And, and this is part and parcel of that. There was a lot of uh, blame placed on this strategy. Uh, people saw it as having amplified uh, some, of the, some of the declines that we saw at the start of the year. Uh, partly because it was such a uh, it was a strategy that relied so much on leverage. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions, the degree of which, to which leverage is being used. And the other thing, I don't know what the swaps market is like in China. Here in the U.S., it trades kind of in the over-the-counter market, so there's not an exchange per se that's creating a level of visibility into potential counterparty risk. So it just kind of exacerbates a little bit of the volatility. And if we're talking about using the equity market as a way to measure sentiment, obviously, if you're a retail investor and every day you look at, you know, media to try to gauge an understanding of where equities are trading just to use the equity market as an example, and you see a steady decline in the value of those assets, I mean, it's going to weigh on sentiment in, in quite a dramatic fashion to the downside. Exactly. So, 
Uh, you know, the swaps market is fairly opaque here in China. And a lot of these, uh, this direct market access, the strategy, a lot of it was directly between the quant fund and the broker. And so there was not a lot of visibility. That was one of the problems. You had leverage that was up to three times. Uh, and now the, the securities regulator is saying that has to be reined back to one times whatever uh, the amount of money is being deployed. Uh, the There is... For, especially for the retail investors, there's, if you look at the media, I think we have in the past few months seen a big attempt by state media to put a, a, a brave face on things to, to try and uh, highlight and amplify the positives. Uh, and I think the biggest thing that's happened so far is so far in February, we've mostly had uh, green days, days when the market has gone up, mostly because of the regulators' uh, intervention in the market, but that is having an effect on sentiment. Sometimes you read between the lines on what the regulator puts out. In this case, uh, it added, the CSRC did, that um, they would severely crack down on illegal activities. So was this illegal? Uh, and what sort of message does it send that, you know, that the regulators seem to always think that it's because of bad actors rather than bad policies? So, so this strategy is not illegal. Uh, I, I think the there have been other uh, actors that have been punished by the securities regulator uh, in recent weeks for for activities that were illegal. Uh, I believe uh, last night the securities regulator also announced that they were taking some punitive measures against another fund for for uh, sort of uh, controlling. Uh, unbeknownst to the regulator, other funds that they had not disclosed. And, and so that that obviously was in violation of rules. And so I think the regulator is trying to do two things at once here. One, it's trying to rein in uh, strategies that are legal and allowed, but trying to reduce the amount of risk that they, uh, uh, they bring to the market by reining in how much leverage they can take, but at the same time also issuing a warning to any traders, institutions that that they have to get their acts together and that the regulator, if anything is being done that's not uh, up to the rules, uh, the regulator is going to punish. So I'm wondering, as I'm listening to you, John, I'm wondering whether at next week's NPC, the National People's Congress uh, meeting that uh, gets underway on the 5th, whether the new Premier Li Chiang is, is going to address any of these issues that he will discuss or at least address the issue of maybe tighter regulation in terms of the way financial markets have been behaving? So I think a, a good way to look at uh, the premier's address at the NPC is to see it as sort of the Chinese uh, form of the state of the union that we have in the United States. And so this, this address will be, uh, will be written in a way to try, I believe, to instill confidence, to make uh, the public feel good about the economy. So I, I would expect a lot of verbiage in there about how things are getting better, how underlying fundamentals are not as bad as people might think, and how things are starting to look better. Uh, I, I, I think he will probably mention the fact that uh, the economy is not as great as everybody had hoped, that the families across the country are facing hardships, but I think the main point he will make is that things are going to get better. 
John, do you feel that policymakers will um, feel as though they need to be delicate here? Because if they come out with really sweeping uh, policy changes, like, let's say, running um, budget deficit spending up over 4%, that it might send a, a worrisome a message? Is, is that part of the consideration, do you think? I think there is a lot of concern within government here in Beijing that, uh, let's say, if we lever up uh, central government uh, books and and sort of borrow, China borrows its way out of this current situation, that that will lead to an even worse crisis down the road. There is a lot of concern about that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of people here who are saying, if the house is on fire, you got to put the fire out first. And yeah. so I think at this point, uh, the government, based on what we've heard from the premier uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, they had a meeting where the, uh, to discuss his work report that he'll deliver at the NPC. And uh, the readout from that meeting actually had a lot of verbiage around him saying, we got to do more. We have to take real concrete steps to show people that the government is responding to the economic situation. So I do think Concerns aside, they're going to try to do what they can. So I I understand what you're saying in terms of admitting that things are really difficult right now. But internally, I'm wondering whether what's happening right now in the economy is being viewed as something that is or was as serious as what we had in uh, 2015. I think the I I think the concern is greater at this point uh, for a few reasons. One. Uh, the relationship with the United States is not good. It's much worse than it was in 2015. Uh, you're, that, that was the Obama administration. Uh, China hosted the G20. Barack Obama and Xi Jinping stood up at the G20 in Hanzhou and announced that the U.S. and China were going to cooperate on uh, carbon goals. Um, that, that period of time has ended. The relationship is much more competitive. Uh, at the same time, there are other issues. The the population in China is now shrinking. There's a demographic sort of conundrum that is much more pronounced now than it was in 2015. And so yeah. those issues, I think, make this current situation much more difficult. Yeah, it does seem it seems uh, a little bit more dangerous at the moment. John, thanks so much for joining us. John Liu, Bloomberg executive editor in Beijing. Doug, if we had a political analyst on instead of our own executive editor, I might have asked him, is there a gap between the premier's approach and the president's approach? Most yeah. people would say perhaps no, but one seems to want to get more aggressive, the other a little bit more cautious. This is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Well, tech stocks have taken a little bit of a backseat of late in the U.S. market. We've seen a few other sectors like industrials and financials and consumer discretionary take a little bit more of a leading role in the markets here of late. Does that continue? Is tech done? Let's get to Dan Ives, Managing Director and Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities. I know that you will uh, you know, raise an eyebrow over that uh, comment, uh, uh, Dan, because I know that you're still quite bullish on selected stocks in the tech arena. We had a guest on earlier this morning who said that the dollar has been strong in part because money flows into uh, tech stocks in the U.S. and also uh, the oil market expanding in the United States. Is AI fueling a mega trend 
in the U.S. Uh, I think that's a great point because, like, look, this is a revolution that it, that it, we're talking about a 1995-type moment star of the Internet. And I think that's why what we're seeing with tech, and to your point, I believe this party is just starting. In other words, it's our view that we're in the midst of what's going to be a two- to three-year tech bull market. And that's something where, led by the godfather of AI, Jensen, NVIDIA, and, of course, Microsoft and others, but now we're seeing the second, third, fourth derivatives of this play out and that's why we believe, unless you have a telescope, hard to find this recession that's bullish for tech with AI party just starting. Yeah, we were talking a moment ago about the Baidu numbers and the reflection in the results that maybe there was a very aggressive tech spend on AI that's not yet panning out. I mean, so I understand what you're saying in terms of front loading uh, the buying. I mean, I remember back in the 90s when Cisco Systems was basically underwriting uh, client purchases of their networking gear, yep. right? When that went pear-shaped, Cisco was left holding the bag. I just wonder if there is a level of enthusiasm that may be, in the words of uh, a great sage, irrational exuberance. Yeah, look, and I think that's been the debate over the last year. But I think what we've seen over the last month with Microsoft's numbers— the godfather of AI, Jensen, and NVIDIA last week, named Palantir, MongoDB, and others. The monetization's happening. See, that's the difference. As someone like myself that's covered tech stocks going back to the late 90s, that's why we believe this is a 1995 moment. So you remember pe Pet.com, right? This is like not like Pet.com? Well, look, I mean, w I, there was so much froth back then, and there was... Uh, the monetization was all on the horizon. Stocks were trading at 30 times revenues and eyeballs. Now we're talking about companies that have 30, 40, 50 billion of cash. But Dan, you know, Pets.com is probably not a good example because it, it didn't have much in the way of earnings. There are a lot of companies then that didn't. But there were companies then, Cisco was already mentioned, that did have earnings. And they still went into a kind of black hole for about 10 to 15 years. Uh, you need to pay close attention to valuations and whether or not these earnings can continue. Do you see some of those parallels and do you worry that some of these stocks are getting extended? Yeah, look, I think it all, if 23, to your point, if 2023 was really the start of the AI revolution and, and obviously all about multiple expansion, 2024 is about showing the numbers. It's not about multiples. It's showing the numbers. And that's what, look, that's what we've seen throughout earnings. Well, you look, you look across earnings, we've seen that. And we believe the monetization, I think investors, the street could be underestimated tech earnings by 15 to 20% when we look at the next two to three years. So the techs, the CapEx may be there. I mean, NVIDIA, big beneficiary, everybody wants the, you know, the processors that uh, NVIDIA manufactures, but I'm just wondering when, you know, the end user, whether they really get the bang for the buck, whether their productivity uh, strengthens to such a degree, whether it becomes obvious that the AI revolution is not only durable, but practical. Sure. And I think that that hits on the key point. It's all about use cases. And from a use case perspective, we have over 80 use cases for AI. You go back three, four months ago, it was 15 to 20. So use cases are exploding. But right now, the golden goose, it's not the consumer, it's the enterprise. The enterprise where you're going to see the use cases, the consumer piece, 
That'll be 25, 26. That's where Google, Meta, and others are going to significantly benefit. Right now, the focus is the enterprise AI revolution. So you've mentioned a few names. Uh, clearly, NVIDIA and also Microsoft are among the leaders in the AI revolution. Uh, what are some other companies that you think are, are quite durable uh, in their approach uh, to AI and the benefits that they will derive from AI? Yeah, I think the best pure play AI play out there is the, we, we call them the messy of AI, Palantir. I think from a use case perspective, that that is really front and center in terms of a lot of these use cases. Other names, MongoDB, in terms of what I view as a core AI play. I also view some of the some of the software names, Salesforce.com, Adobe, that are going to be AI plays. Then you look at areas like cybersecurity. There's names like Veronis that benefits. You look at names like Pegasystems, which is on the developer tools. Our point is second, third, fourth derivatives of the revolution is what you got to be focused on right now. Okay. Well, um, you mentioned Salesforce after the bell, company giving a disappointing uh, full-year revenue forecast. And I guess uh, it suggests to some people that this AI revolution that we're talking about, certainly the features that Salesforce has been trying to embed in its applications, have really not been driving a lot of growth. I mean, is that a fair statement? Is that the way that you're reading the Salesforce results? Yeah. So I'd read it. It's a comeback for the ages from Benioff and Salesforce. And if you looked up conservative guidance in the dictionary, you'd see that. And I think but that's – so I, I view Salesforce as a stock that goes much higher from here. AI monetization will be on the horizon. But look, if Benioff's flying the plane, I'm very comfortable uh, mm. being in 29E uh, watching Netflix. Dan, you're here in Asia. You're coming presumably because you have a lot of clients uh, that you want to see. Do they want to see you? <laughs> well, I think, look, it's good. I, I, it's funny because all, all these empty offices, when I come in, I thought it was a hint. Maybe uh, I shouldn't have come. No, so, <laughs> but, but, but to that point, the, the demand, maybe what I'd say here, to, like, let's say this year, is dramatically different than it was a few years ago yeah, because yeah. of AI. I was cheating on that, Doug, because uh, one of the things we were chatting about before we started the, the uh, session was that he's getting more and more people coming to the meetings, uh, uh, dozens and dozens and dozens, where it used to be fewer. This is Bloomberg. It's because Dan's here with us that we've got to talk about uh, Apple. And um, one of the things that I know you've been bullish on this stock for, uh, for quite some time, were you disappointed that they pulled a plug on the car? I mean, I'd say disappointed in the fact that it was a decade-long headache where the billions could have been spent in other places, but actually happy that they finally ripped the Band-Aid off and ended it. Because right now, you need to see them laser-focused, all hands on deck on AI. That's, that's where the focus is. This was really a race to nowhere. Writing was in the wall. They needed to shut this down. You know, a big, big uh, input for NVIDIA was getting all these uh, buy orders from Meta. You know, he had uh, the CEO out crowing about that for a while. Not, not NVIDIA CEO, but Mark Zuckerberg. Is Apple going to become the next big customer of NVIDIA, or will they develop some of these chips on their own? Oh, I think they will be a major customer of NVIDIA. Because when we look at their plan, we believe that they launch an AI app store this summer that, they, that they'll talk about WWDC. And then I believe AI actually gets incorporated into iPhone 16. So this is, look, this is the start of a renaissance of growth at Apple as they further monetize. They are not going to be left out of this AI party 
cooking Cupertino tacticians, every time you, you bet against them, it's been the wrong move. Okay, but let's talk about regulatory risk. In Apple's case, it's the App Store. The Justice Department, we are told, is taking a hard look at how uh, the company has basically locked out competitors from playing in that space when Apple contracts with a lot of these software developers making and writing the latest apps. That's one. And then you've got other concerns. Elizabeth Warren just yesterday talking about the over-concentration of AI in, in names like Microsoft, Alphabet, even Amazon, at the exclusion of the startup community. And is there a way that you're viewing regulatory risk right now in this space? Yeah, and I spent a lot of time in D.C. It's a double-edged sword because probably the biggest strength right now within the U.S., especially from a, you know, when you think from an industry perspective, is tech, is the community, is AI. So as the MAG-7, as the strong have gotten stronger, that's actually been a huge positive, which is part of that double-edged sword. When you look at the regulatory, I think the lack of consensus, it continues to make that more noise than reality. I think for Apple, it's a little different. When you look at DOJ and them, you know, clearly coming down on the App Store, look, that's that's going to be something that they're going to need to navigate. We still don't believe that that's going to dramatically change, but this is going to be a fight on their hand. And I think that's what we're going to see is the strong get stronger. They're going to get more scrutiny from the Beltway. I'm kind of curious about what I started off with uh, about a broadening in the market. We have seen a lot of sectors uh, outperform tech of late. Are you worried that we're going to see a pause in some of the uh, investment in tech while uh, some of the other areas outperform? And if so, is that just a short phase or could it does it have the potential for lasting longer? Well, I, th I view it as a positive because what we're seeing just broader earnings coming out of financials and others uh, in terms of market breadth. But it's it's the torchbearer, the leaders are going to continue to be tech because of the revolution where you see we believe tech stocks are up in our 20, 25 percent. And I think this uh, it goes back to this AI party just starting with tech leading it. What's the downside here, potentially, if the market goes into some kind of, you know, corrective mode? Maybe it's temporary, but is there some downside mm -hmm. risk that we need to explore very quickly, Dan? Yeah, you could see downside risk on Fed, jaw boning, things like that, potential black swan events. But I, I believe any sort of those events will be short-lived uh, with a market that we see going you know, much higher this year. Okay, your top three picks, number one, number two, and number three. Number one, Mongo. DB, number two, Microsoft, number three, Palantir. Those are the three core AI plays. Whoa, not NVIDIA. So look, NVIDIA, it goes back to that's been the main way to play it. But now, and that we continue to be super bullish on NVIDIA and the godfather of AI. But now it's focused on what are the names that are not reflecting what we see the second, third, fourth derivative. And it's software that's now taking the reins from chips. All right, Dan, good stuff. Always a pleasure. Enjoy your time in Hong Kong. Dan Ives, Managing Director, also Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities, joining here on the Daybreak Asia. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Asia podcast, bringing you the stories, making news and moving markets in the Asia Pacific. Visit the Bloomberg podcast channel on YouTube to get more episodes of this and other shows from Bloomberg. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen. And always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business app.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.